Let's pray once again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his submission to your will in glory past. We thank you for his self-humbling in becoming a man. Appearing as one of us, taking on human flesh, ready and willing to suffer and die. We thank you for that attitude that was in Christ that took him to the cross for us, paying for the sins of multitudes. We thank you that you raised him from the dead in great glory, so that now, as God and man, he seeks sits at your right hand ruling over this sad and broken world to accomplish all your purposes to complete the work of salvation that sinners may hear the good news believe and be saved we thank you as the one ascended to heaven he sent the Holy Spirit and he remains with us we thank you that he is himself only the foretaste the first fruits of the glory that is to come when Christ returns and we are gathered into your presence in the new heavens and the new earth. What a prospect. Thank you, Lord, and pray that this message this evening will be of some use to your servants in strengthening them in their faith, in their relationship with you, and building them up that they may continue to run the race that's set before us with eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. started with the idea of a grand sermon on Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 to 16. Then I thought I'd better just limit it down a bit and take verse 3. And now I've come down to just one phrase really in Philippians 3 verse 3. No confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. We might say no self-confidence, putting it in modern terms. No confidence in our own abilities, our own gifts, our own strengths. It's a strange sounding message perhaps in this world where low self-confidence is seen as a problem. And people speak about that hypercritical voice that uh, nags them and criticizes them from within. You're foolish, you've messed up again. You've lost, you're unpopular, you're ineffective. Why are you the way you are? That inner voice, that inner critic of low self-esteem. Well, Paul says, I had no self-esteem. And you Christians, you true Christians, you have no self-esteem. You have no confidence in the flesh. When it comes to the things of God, you put all such self-confidence to one side. Yes, he is talking about us believers in verse Three there, he, he talks about us as the circumcision. And of course, what he just means by that is we are the true people of God, the true heirs of Abraham, the true children of the promise, the ones in whom all God's purposes, right back from the beginning of the Bible, they all come to rest on us. We are the circumcision. And here's one of the things that true, that's true about us. We put no confidence in the flesh. When it comes to our relationship with God, there's no place here for self-esteem. 
But Paul says, as, as he goes on to explain what he means in these verses, he says to us, I actually had a high self-esteem once in spiritual things. I once thought I was quite successful in living a life that pleased God. I once saw myself as, as quite advanced, actually, in, in the ways of God. I, I felt I had some things I could boast about. I, I could glory in my, my spiritual CV. I felt I had certain things that recommended me to God ahead of other people, that I was closer to God than others. And he goes through these things. You can see them in the following verses. I might have confidence in the flesh, he says. If anyone else thinks he might have confidence, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, he was born into the people of God. He didn't convert in later on in his adult life. He was born into an Israelite family. As he tells us, I was of the stock of Israel and I was of the tribe of Benjamin. So he can even tell us what tribe he belonged to. Um, and um, so he's got that pedigree. He's got that background of being born into the right kind of family. And whatever kind of family you were born into, well, you can't say any higher than Paul in terms of the things of God and the promises in the Bible. You might have been born into a wealthy family. You might have been born into a Christian family and learnt the things of God from a young age. But Paul was born into a family to whom specific promises were attached. And he thought that he was an heir of those promises by the mere fact of his birth and circumcision. But more than that, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. So his home when he was growing up wasn't one of those Greek homes which compromised with the pagan culture. They spoke in the Hebrew language, and they learnt from the Hebrew scriptures as a family. So that was his upbringing, that was his background, just as perhaps yours was in a Christian home. And he said, I thought this was a great advantage to me. I thought it gave me some grounds of boasting in the flesh. I thought it all brought me closer to God in some way. If anyone else thinks he may have such confidence, I have more. Then he goes on to talk about his achievements, the things he could put down to his own choices and efforts. I was a Pharisee regarding the law. And we know from the Gospels how strict and how serious these men were and how thoroughly they observed laws and requirements and how much effort they put in to living such a life and how they felt that really gave them a right to look down on other people who were less serious, less committed. Perhaps some of you here are very committed Christians. Well, Paul certainly was a very committed and serious Pharisee. In fact, he says elsewhere in the scriptures, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So he said, out of all the young men, out of all the young Pharisees coming through, I was ahead of them. I was in front of them. I was out in front. If it was a competition, I was winning because of my zeal and thoroughness in practicing the traditions of my fathers. That's Galatians chapter 1, verse 14 in Paul's writings. He felt that he had grounds then to look at other people and compare himself favorably with them and say, look, I, I, if this is a race, I'm winning. You're not doing as well as me. You're not practicing this religion as thoroughly and effectively as I am. He felt he had grounds for confidence in the flesh. But there's something a bit odd in these verses. If I point out to you the end of verse 6, he says, Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. 
Now, does that strike anyone here as odd? Concerning the righteousness of the law, the righteousness that comes by keeping God's law, I was blameless. Did you think that was possible, that somebody could ever say such a thing? I kept God's law blamelessly? Well, it seems that what Paul means is concerning God's law as we Pharisees understood it. And that's a very different matter, isn't it? The true law of God, the law that we find in the Bible, that is so searching and so demanding that it's impossible for sinful men and women like us to keep it blamelessly. We know that. Just think, just the, the command this morning, New Testament command, but still part of the law of God, have the attitude of Jesus Christ. And you only have to remind yourself of the words to think, well, how far away we are from that mindset that took him to the cross for us and how different we are from what we should be. But the Pharisees had a way of in understanding the Old Testament law that kind of took the awkward bits off it and reduced it down and made it manageable. They made it over their traditions that they developed over centuries. They'd made it into something that people could live with. Though very demanding still and challenging, it had become at their hands something that you could, in fact, aspire to live up to. I'll give you an example. You remember in the, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, you remember that it began with a lawyer coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the Lord Jesus Christ said to him, well, you, you, you know the commandments. Um, what do you think? What do you think they say? And the, and the, the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the Lord Jesus said to him, you've answered rightly. Do this and you'll live. But he was seeking to justify himself. So he got into this kind of pharisaical way of, of minimizing the impact of these commandments by challenging Jesus, who is my neighbor? He was evidently of a mindset of saying, well, those people, they don't count, and I don't have to love them, and they're not really my neighbors. And I don't, he's completely the wrong kind of person. So I, actually, by the time you come down to it, he was thinking to himself, that's probably not so hard to do. And of course, he was completely wrong and missed the point of the whole thing. But that's just an example of the way these people brought the law of God down to something that, by means of the flesh, by means of our own efforts, people could live with. And even say they'd done so blamelessly, as Paul said at one time about himself. Now this business of reinterpreting the commands of God and, and finding ways of, of living with them, I'm not sure it died out with the Pharisees. I wonder if sometimes... There are even people in our churches who, who get into this kind of mindset. It is possible, isn't it, to be the kind of person who, who really focuses down on, 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 a, on a detail of, of church life or personal life. There are people who focus down on, on the details of what you should and should not do on a Sunday. And it's not just for themselves or for their families. They feel that everybody should come to the same point as them exactly on this. Or what you should wear in church or what should or should not be sung in the way of hymns and songs in church, or um, what should the attitude be to, to alcohol, 
or tattoos or piercings or all such things. People will come down very strongly on a particular issue, which I think I'm right in saying in those cases, are not specified in that sort of detail in the Bible. I'm not saying there aren't issues there and discussions to be had about things like drink, and we know the Bible commands us not to get drunk and so on. But there is a tendency, perhaps, for us to major on those things which are not quite commands of God in that specific detailed sense in which we wish to apply them to all our Christian friends, not just to ourselves. And the problem with that can be that those very same people then who are so very, very strong on the correct dress in church, say, then can be the same people who tend to not be so strong on some things that God actually has said. Now, I don't know you. I don't know if this is <laughs> an issue for anybody here. I hope not. But you can understand the sort of syndrome I'm, I'm, I'm trying to bring out here. Um, people who really, in, in fairness, sometimes seem to ignore certain commands of God. Things that he has actually told us in the Bible we should be doing. Practice hospitality. It's a command to all of us. In fact, it says practice hospitality without grumbling. Even more challenging. Look after widows and orphans in their distress. James chapter 1. Prefer each other's needs to your own. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. You can see, when you begin to think about what the Bible actually says, how very, very challenging it is. And how very difficult, in fact impossible it would be to say, I have kept all those commandments. I am blameless by the standard of God's law. And you can see the tendency that we have then, instead of confronting our shortcomings honestly, we then focus on other issues which are easier to manage and easier to live up to. So these become the really important things. And those are the things that we overlook and conveniently neglect. The Lord Jesus put it this way. You have a fine way of laying aside the commandments of God, holding on to the traditions of men. Well, that's where Paul was as a Pharisee. And may that not be where we are, either as a church corporately or as individuals. A fine way of laying aside the commandments of God and holding the traditions of men. That's how Paul was able to say in our chapter that with regards to the law, he was blameless because it wasn't God's law at the end of the day, it was man's law because it came from man. Then man could fulfill it by means of his own flesh and uh, not particularly need any help or any salvation in doing so. But look at the, the, the phrase here that gives the game away. This ironic phrase in the same verse, Philippians 3 verse 6. Concerning zeal, I was very zealous, Paul says, but look at where his zeal led him. I was very passionate. It wasn't just a lip service. I wasn't a nominalist. I was so zealous, I persecuted the church. Isn't that ironic? He was so passionate for this pharisaical religion that he'd become an enemy of God, an enemy of the people of God. That's where it had all taken him. That's how wrong he'd gone. This religion of the flesh 
It wasn't just a sort of minor variant. It wasn't as if he'd gone a little bit out of the way. He'd gone completely the wrong way. He'd become an enemy of God, of Christ and of the people of God and therefore of God himself. This whole thing had blinded him completely to Christ. He's hating the one whom God had sent to save him and to save all of us from our sins. So, of course, Paul realizes this then on the road to Damascus when Christ speaks to him from heaven. And then he realizes that these things that he thought were to his favor, they thought they were gain. Verse 7, he thought they were taking him forwards. He thought he was going to gain God and gain salvation and gain heaven and gain the favor of God. Now he says it was all loss. All that religion of the flesh, all that effort of myself, all my own law keeping, all my thought of pleasing God myself and being able to boast that I'd done things that God would admire and bless me for, all of that is just, I, I thought it was getting me, it was getting me the wrong way. It's getting me totally the wrong way. It blinded me to Christ. So I have to count it all loss. I have to set it aside and say it's worthless. It doesn't count. It doesn't qualify me. It doesn't put me in good standing with God. It's all loss. It's all hindered me. It's harmed me. It set me against Christ. It hurt me. I count it, he says, in verse 8, as so much rubbish. And people say the word there literally is manure or done, all my works righteousness. All those things I thought were good things, all the things I thought I could stand on with confidence before God. So much rubbish, so much manure. I reject it all with indignancy and horror because it all blinded me to my real need of Christ. What was wrong with the Pharisee in Luke 18. Will you turn there if you've got a Bible? Luke 18 verse 9. I'm, I'm sure you know this, this parable of Jesus. But let's look at it again. And I think it helps us to understand where Paul was coming from. Luke 18 verse 9 to 14. What was so bad about this Pharisee? It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And you'll remember that the Lord Jesus talks about two people praying in the temple, and one of them is a Pharisee. And the Pharisee stands and prays, God, I thank you, Luke 18, verse 11, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I possess, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. What's wrong with that prayer? I mean, we know it's wrong because the Lord Jesus Christ said that it's the other man who went home justified and not the Pharisee. But why? I mean, presumably what he's saying about himself is true. Presumably he's not like the tax collector. Presumably he gives tithes then and he fasts and so on. And these are good things. And look, he's thanking God. I thank you. He's not exactly taking the credit himself and saying, look at me, God, look at me. He's saying, I thank you because if... Your help, your grace in my life has made me into this special kind of man. Why is that so bad? I mean, again, I don't want to tread on anyone's toes, but we've sometimes heard people pray this way in our prayer meetings, I think. 
Lord, we thank you that we're found in this prayer meeting tonight. Lord, if it wasn't for you, where would we be this evening? And, uh, well, you know, I don't want to, as I say, I don't want to be too controversial about it, but I think it's a good question, isn't it? Where is this Pharisee going so wrong? And surely it's only this point that he's failing to do what Paul did. He ought to count all these things as rubbish. He ought not to be bringing them into God's presence and saying, I'm different from this one and I'm different from that one. He ought to count them as loss. He ought to count them as nothing, as worthless, as not worth mentioning. He ought not to make such a big thing about them as if they're something special. Underneath it all, he's a sinner just like everyone else. But in order to see Christ, he needs to reject all this self-righteousness and push it away and discard it and throw it into the trash. Not be going on about the great things that he's done as if somehow they made some fundamental difference to his standing with God. They don't, of course they don't. But in order to see that, he must count them rubbish. All the fasting, all the tithes, all the praying, count it rubbish. In order, Paul says, to gain Christ. Yes, you can't have the attitude, even of that Pharisee, and have Christ. You must have one or the other. You can't have both. You can't have a religion of the flesh and have Christ. You can't have something that smacks of self-righteousness and achievement and have Christ. You can't have a religion that allows you to compare yourself favorably with other people. I'm not like him. I'm not like her. Thank you, God, I'm not like them. No, if you have that, you can't have Christ. It's one or the other. Look again at Philippians then, where we are, in verse, uh, well, verse 6 and verse 7 seems to have disappeared from my sheet here in verse 8. What things were gained to me, I've counted loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. All that stuff's got to go. All that self-advancement and self-promotion and self-congratulation and self-esteem in religious matters. There's no place for it. If you must hold on to it, well, by all means do so, but know that you cannot simultaneously hold on to Christ. It's not possible. And this relates then to the question of what then is so special about the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does Paul feel so strongly about him? The excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, he says. What is excellent about Christ then? What is so good about knowing him? I was in a prayer meeting a while ago where we were praying for the city of Paris. Somebody prayed that the wonders of Jesus might be made known in Paris. A fantastic prayer. I prayed it myself many times since. And the Lord is beginning to answer it, I believe. But what, what are the wonders of Jesus then? Why would somebody want him? Why would somebody prefer Jesus Christ to their own pride and self-esteem and self-worth? Why would somebody choose a religion which gives you no ground for pride, no self-esteem and no sense of self-worth in order to have Christ? Well, knowing him is excellent, yes. And look at verse 9. 
if only you are in Christ, you may have a righteousness that is from God by faith. You could have a righteousness of your own from keeping the law, or you could try, or you could have a righteousness that comes from God. Which of those sounds better? Which sounds preferable? Which sounds like it's worth having? We saw already that Paul had uh, that sense as a Pharisee that he'd kept God's law. It was a misleading sense. And there was a point before his conversion that he lost that sense altogether. We don't quite know how to fit this into Paul's story. But if you look at Romans 7, Paul speaks here of his life before Christ. I believe he starts there in verse 7 and goes down to verse 12, talking about his pre-Christian experience. And there was a time before he came to Christ that he thought of himself as blameless, but then, Romans 7, verse 7, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness until the law, unless the law had said, you shall not covet. So there was a time then when he actually began to understand God's law properly. And he thought about the Ten Commandments. And many of them are to do with external things that you can live up to more or less. You shall not steal. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. But as Paul thought more about the, the Ten Commandments, the tenth one came home to him. You shall not covet. And he realized with dismay that this is a command that speaks to the heart. It's not just about your conduct. You can't keep that commandment by following a set of legalistic rules. You can't do it in the flesh. Because it says to you, what you want is wrong. Never mind what you do and say. What's underneath it all? What's motivating you? What makes you tick? That's wrong itself. And that drove him then to what we would call conviction of sin. And a deep sense of guilt before God. And it's, we don't know how to tie that in with Paul's testimony with his meeting with the Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road. But at some point before he met the Lord Jesus Christ, the law of God did this work, this preparatory work in his heart to make him see his need of grace. Not just grace to help you live a better life, but grace that brings justification from God, righteousness from God. See, the Pharisee believed in grace that helps you to live a better life, didn't he? I thank you that I'm not like other men. I thank you for all these tithes I give. I thank you for making me a man of prayer. Yes, everybody who's any kind of religious person believes in that. The Roman Catholics believe in that. But Paul, when he understood the Tenth Commandment, realized that he was ruined before God. You shall not covet. And then this in some way tied in with his encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road and led him to the Savior. I've got a, a quote here from Augustus Toplady. We're singing this hymn in a few moments. Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. He was a preacher. He was an evangelical preacher in the 18th century. He was an Anglican. And uh, he preached justification by faith. This is a part of a sermon he preached at the Lord's table. Beware of coming with one sentiment on your lips and another in your hearts, he said. 
Take heed of saying with your mouths, we do not come to this thy table, O Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, while perhaps you have in reality some secret reserves in favour of that very self-righteousness which you profess to renounce. Perhaps you're thinking that Christ's merits alone will not save you unless you add something or other to make it effectual. Be not so deceived. God will not thus be mocked. Call your works what you will, terms, causes, conditions, supplements. The matter comes to the same point. Christ is strut out of his throne by these or any similar views of human obedience. Wholly depend on Jesus as the Lord, your righteousness. Take the finished work of the crucified God alone as your anchor, foundation and acceptance with the Father. As he's got the table in front of him and the elements there, he says to them, leave your own righteousness behind you or you have no business here. And so the sermon continues. Yes, that's the issue then in Philippians. These two alternative types of righteousness in verse 9. And the one that Christ brings is a righteousness from God. And Paul was so glad to have it. Given that deep sense of sin by the work of the law of God on his heart, he then says with great thankfulness and wonder, I have a righteousness from God. God himself reckons me righteous. And he reckons me completely righteous for the sake of his son. I renounce any idea of a righteousness based on keeping God's law. I give it up. I reject it indignantly. I want to know Christ and the righteousness that comes through him. I was encouraged to read on the website before coming here your statement of faith. And this is a part of one of the articles that you believe in as a church. Justification through faith of the elect and redeemed church by the blood and imputed righteousness of Christ irrespective of any moral or spiritual works done by them before or after regeneration. Irrespective. Without taking them into account at all. Without relying on them, looking on them, bringing them into the reckoning in any way, shape or form. Just through the blood of Christ. Just on the basis of his death. Righteous before a holy God. And righteous forever. Well, so much then for the religion of the flesh. No wonder Paul says, no confidence in the flesh in our verse 3. We are the true people of God who put no confidence in the flesh. And Paul says, I want to know Christ better. This is his ambition. Verse 8, I want to be found in Christ. And that then brings with it a note of the end of his life, doesn't it? It suggests, doesn't it, found by God in the judgment. When I leave this life, Paul says, I want to still be able to say, Christ is my saviour. Christ died for my sins. On his deathbed, Paul wouldn't then be one of those who looks back and talks about his achievements. There were many, of course. What an impressive life he lived. He wouldn't look back on his deathbed and talk about all the things he'd suffered for the cause of Christ, all the churches he'd planted, all the people he'd won for the Savior. 
he'd look back and say, Christ, Christ my righteousness. Righteousness from God is mine. And that would be his hope that he could be found in Christ at the end of his life. That's a good hope for you and me as well, isn't it? We look to Jesus Christ, the Savior. We give up thoughts of our contributions and efforts. We put all that out of our minds. We reject it. And we want to be found in Christ when our time here is done. We want to know him better. Um, somebody in our church passed away a few days ago, aged 80. And I worked out that if I die at the same age, I've got about 20 years to go. I know I look younger, but 20, 21 years, and that'll be me, age 80. What am I going to do with those 21 years? It's not that long when you think about it, is it? It means I've lived three quarters of my life. What am I going to do with the remaining quarter? Well, what would be better than to say, I want to know him, that I may know him, verse 10. I want to gain Christ. I want to be found in Christ. I want the faith that's in Christ, verse 9. I want to know him. I want to live the rest of my time here for him to develop and strengthen that relationship with him. I want to be found in him when I die. So, just as I close then, I wonder if I'm talking to people whose self-esteem is low or high when you look in the mirror do you like what you see are you pleased with yourself are you unhappy with yourself do you have that little voice in your head criticizing you constantly about all kinds of things or do you silence it with another voice that tells you how well you're doing well listen when you look in the mirror don't Give headspace to that self-critical view. You are rubbish. And you don't need to replace it with another more positive message of self-belief and self-confidence. Say to yourself, I am justified with a justification of righteousness from God. It's not about my efforts or my accomplishments. And my failures don't count against me here. I have the righteousness that comes from knowing Christ. Put aside these thoughts of a, a doing well or badly in the Christian religion. Know that your standing with God is secure because of Christ. And you are righteous in his sight. Tell yourself that when you look in the mirror tomorrow. Let's pray before we sing that top lady hymn. Lord, we'd say, as Paul said, I want to know Christ. I want to gain Christ. I want the faith that's in Christ. I want to be found in Christ with a righteousness not my own based on works of the law, but the righteousness that's from God. Lord, where would we be without this? Where would we be apart from this salvation? What hope would we have? Lord, we thank you for that taste we've had of that same conviction that Paul felt under the law of God. We've tasted this. We know what it's like to see ourselves as you see us. It's a frightening, a horrifying sight. 
and yet it drove us to Jesus. And we pray that we almost may be found in him. Lord, forgive us where we've, we've put ourselves ahead of other people and looked at the contributions we've made in different ways and the things we've done and all this kind of stuff. It's gone to our heads sometimes and it's blinded us to Christ. We pray that we might learn to reject all such thinking, to count these things as loss, as rubbish, because they hinder us. And Lord, we pray for your help. We can hold out this tremendous good news to others. Righteousness from God through faith in Christ. This is what people need to know. They never work it out themselves. They'll be lost in a world of self-esteem and self-belief and all the rest of it. Help us to hold out this word of life, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, let me read to you the second verse of our hymn while you, while you turn it up with me. Number 558 is, of course, Top Lady's best-known hymn, I think it's right to say. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. But listen to these words. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. We stand and sing together.